back to the book of Romans today. Uh, we began our journey through Romans on May 31st, 2015, believe it or not. And we are scheduled to finish up on April 2nd of this year. Uh, we have four chapters left, and today we're looking at chapter 13, the beginning of chapter 13. These final chapters of Romans deal with the activity of the gospel through the lives of believers in Christ. You know, the, the book of Romans is this treatise on the gospel. Uh, and these final chapters are going to deal with how, uh, now that we've come to faith in Christ, and we understand the, 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 the reason for the coming of Christ and the new life that He's given to us, how does that play out in our relationships? In chapter 12, we saw how it plays out in our functioning in the body of Christ, the church, that we've all been gifted. There's things that are, um, are places for us to be a part of the overall mission of the church. It closed in chapter 12 with loving your enemies and how we relate to those that are against us. And chapter 13 begins with a passage on how Christians should relate to the local authorities of government. Aren't you excited you came to church today? That's right. And before I read this passage, let me just uh, plant this seed in your spirit. What do you think about government? I mean, do you have these overwhelming, one warm, fuzzy, positive feelings? Or is your reaction one of negativity? Is government a good thing or an evil thing? Now, sometimes I hear Christians say things like, uh, we just ought to stay out of government. It's so disgusting, it's so seedy, it's so slimy. They would advocate that Christians shouldn't run for office. Uh, Christians shouldn't campaign for officials, nor even vote, sometimes they even say. They see government as evil and something to be avoided. And I guess the question is, is that a biblical view for Christians to hold? Let's look at the passage here and see what Scripture says about how Christians should relate to government. Chapter 13, verses 1 through 7 say this. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Yes, that's in the Bible. You also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. God has established human authority that we know as government. 
tells us that we are to be in subjection to it. And my first point is this. Human government was God's idea, not man's. Right? You see, God has given us three institutions to provide guidance and stability for our lives and for culture. Their family, church, and state. And God established these because of the propensity that we have for sinfulness. And there is a need for mankind to have restraint, right? (laughs) Unrestrained man ends up harmful to himself and to others. We need families. We need healthy families that nurture and teach children. But we also need the family to set parameters in our lives to keep us from unrestrained behavior. And to show us our need for Jesus. We need the church. We need the church to nurture and teach us about God's truth and how God's grace teaches us to say no to that which is ungodly. Second chapter of Titus. And the government has a God-given role to play in setting parameters to keep us as a society from this unrestrained sinfulness. We hear complaining all the time about the government. I've heard complaining, believe it or not, I've heard complaining about the government in this church. Oh, I know. But can you imagine a society without government? I don't want to live there, do you? See, the first thing that Paul starts with is that everyone is to submit or be subject to the government. Submit or be subject to the government. So let me ask you, how does that make you feel? We really need to understand what he's saying here. Paul is letting us know that our lives function better with government. And he's not making an assessment as to the quality of your particular government at any particular time, but he's giving this general position that Christians walk in. Just as there are bad governments, folks, there are bad churches. There are bad parents. But that doesn't mean you throw out the whole idea of these God-given institutions. We, we, we participate and we do our part to bring them into conformity with God's plan. As we are godly spouses and parents, as we are godly church members, as we are godly citizens. Now, I know there's probably a few of you out there thinking, uh, you have this question, what if human government is evil? What if it's evil in its authority or commands us to do things against the will of God? Should we submit Before I answer that question, let me look at Acts 3 and 4. There is a scene where Peter and John are arrested for expressing their faith in God by healing a man. And uh, they're told, never talk about Jesus again. And uh, they have this response for the governing authorities in Acts 4, 19 and 20. It says this, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's an amazing passage here because it's important to note that even in their denying to conform to the 
warning from the governing authorities, they remain submitted to the institution of government. You see, they're willing, it says, you be the judge. They're willing to accept whatever penalty is imposed for obeying God. When there's a conflict between what God commands and what the government commands, who are we going to go with? (laughs) We're going to go with God. And we're going to submit to the penalties that going with God may bring about. I mean, you remember, you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They refused to bow down to the golden image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And what happened to them? They were thrown into the furnace. And God worked a miracle. Remember Daniel, same book? Book of Daniel? Refused to quit praying to his God. They threw him in the lion's den. God worked a miracle. Needless to say, there are times when following God will put you at odds with those in authority over you, be it in any one of these three institutions, family, church, But that doesn't mean you just write them off and say, I'm not going to submit to any of these God-given institutions. We realize that they're run by human beings. (laughs) And anything run by human beings is not perfect, amen? There's not a perfect family out there. There's not a perfect church out there. And by, <laughs> there is not a perfect government. But they all have a role to play in our lives. A few points from the passage. The fifth verse said this, If you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And the point that I would make is that human government should be feared by evildoers. Do you agree with that? They should have this holy fear, if you will, that when you break the law and you go against the things that God has deemed as good, there ought to be a sense of fear that punishment is awaiting you. As Christian citizens, we promote the rule of law. And first, that means we obey the law as long as it doesn't violate God's word. Second, we support the punishment of criminals. I mean, society is doomed when there is no fear for criminal activity. I mean, we have all kinds of modern examples. Just one that's in the news today. I mean, this, this season of the year is take the situation in Chicago. Right now, 762 people were murdered in the last year. 762 people. Isn't that terrible? But did you know that Baltimore and St. Louis have a higher per capita murder rate than Chicago does? What are leaders in those cities concerned most about? The police. Dean Angelo Sr., president of the union that represents Chicago's rank-and-file officers, said that department morale was low and his members were treading water. He added that policing and violence had, made inappropriate, had, had been inappropriately politicized and that some elected officials were being more anti-police in their platform as opposed to being anti-crime. In some areas, he says, the neighborhoods are on fire and they're more worried about transparency and police issues. No fear of government. The flip side is also true. It's found in verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of good for good behavior, but for evil. 
Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So the point is, human government should not be feared by law-abiding citizens. Have you ever been driving down the freeway and see a cop and all of a sudden fear sweeps over you? Come on. Yes, you have. Have you ever had this experience where you're, you're, you're going down the freeway and uh, you see a cop and this fear sweeps over you and you look down at your speed limit and you're obeying the law? <laughs> Give a little wave to the cop as you go by, right? I'm good. No fear. If you do what is right, biblically, there should be no fear of government intruding into your life. Implication of the past is you're having anything to do with your life. You're, you're, you're obeying the Lord's commands. You're, you're doing good into your culture. And there is no fear that the government is going to have its way in your life. However, is that what we see in our day? Sometimes we see government compelled to insert itself into the lives of law-abiding citizens. And when that begins to happen, we know that we're wandering away from the biblical function of government here in chapter 13 of the book of Romans. I've even heard of places in, in, in the United States of America where governments are taking away people's private property because they can use that property for greater tax revenue than is currently being used for. There's even some in government who would like to stifle the message of the church in speaking out against certain lifestyles and certain behaviors in culture. At certain points, sometimes you could almost get the feeling that there are those in government that somehow become more focused on intruding upon law-abiding citizens than punishing the criminal. From the 13th chapter of Romans, the role of government is to restrain evil so that we may live our lives in peace. So as a Christian, this passage has some things for us. Four things that I glean from it and how we are to function as followers of Christ, as bearers of the grace of God through Christ Jesus in our lives. And there are these four things that I come up with. Number one, submit to the government and its laws. Number two, do what is good. Number three, pay your taxes. And four, honor those in authority. Honor. Sometimes those in authority, you may think, don't deserve your honor. Is that what it says? Honor those if they deserve it? <laughs> it's just like the command to honor your parents. Is that if they deserve it? I guess the question I have is, why do you think Paul has inserted this passage on government in this treatise on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you think that Christians sometimes exclude certain areas of their life from the influence of Christ? Perhaps government is one of those. Where we can kind of behave however we want to in the political arena because that's not spiritual, we think. 
And Paul, throughout this whole, this whole book of Romans, is showing us that the gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Even my relationship with the secular authorities. And when Jesus is our focus, and Jesus is our life, we will be good citizens. Living Jesus is living Jesus everywhere. All the time. We're about Him. We're about His work. We see Him as the answer to our problems. We don't see the government is going to solve our problems. We do agree with that, right? Jesus will solve our problems. Government... You finish that sentence. I just yeah. We don't retreat from bringing Jesus into the public arena. We vote. We want Christians running for office. We want government to fulfill its God-given role, and we want to influence it towards its God-given role. But we are not counting on the public arena to accomplish our mission of reaching the world with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. Changing culture happens in the spiritual realm, not in the political realm. I think we really sometimes need to understand where we as Christians stand in the mindset of our culture. Christians, I don't have to tell you this, but sometimes we're perceived as fighting for a particular type of culture rather than the expression of the real life of Christ in our communities and our families. And the world finds it hypocritical. Sometimes the world even gets to the point where it finds Christians as trying to, their whole mission is to create a Christianized type of culture when one of their primary beliefs, even the world sometimes understands this, that our primary belief is supposedly living for another kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. And this dichotomy confuses the culture about us sometimes. David Kinnaman wrote a book a few years back called Unchristian, What a New Generation Really Thinks About Christianity. It's worth the read. He writes this, he says, One crucial insight kept popping up in our exploration. In studying thousands of outsiders' impressions, it is clear that Christians are primarily perceived for what they stand against. We have become famous for what we oppose rather than who we are for. One outsider has this image of Christians. Entrenched thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical, empire-building, convert-focused people who cannot live peacefully with others. Whoa! It's almost as if we're known for having an us-versus-them mentality. He goes on, outsiders believe Christians do not like them because of what they do and how they look or what they believe. They feel minimized or worse, demonized by the people who love Jesus. I've got to tell you, it breaks my heart. Because I know that feeling is out there, and I know it is very prevalent, especially if you're under And Somehow they've gotten the idea that we are more concerned about telling them 
how they ought to change their beliefs than we are in loving them with an authentic, God-transforming love. Another story from his book, Lisa, a 29-year-old mother of two, tells this story. Well, you're asking how Christians come across to me, I'll tell you. A few weeks ago, I visited a Christian Bible study at a church. Every once in a while I go because I know a few of the women. You know, I'm still trying to figure out this Jesus thing. After the speaker talk, for a while we started a conversation at our table, about eight or nine of us women just chatting away. I was probably the youngest one there, but some of them were about my age. We got along pretty well. We were talking about sex and intimacy and pregnancy, stuff like that. I told them about a friend of mine who was considering an abortion. I told them her entire situation, a 20-year-old, boyfriend left her, she's feeling really alone. And I made some comment about really empathizing with my friend that I could understand that abortion might make sense. I guess I shocked them. I know the women there are pro-life and all. I don't know what I am, pro-life, pro-choice, or just me. But the conversation shifted at that point in a really weird way. Instead of having a dialogue, I was put on the defensive. They were nice enough about it, but the ladies just kept talking at me, trying to fix my attitude about abortion. Here's the part that bothered me, something I never told them. What they didn't know is that I had had an abortion a long time ago. It was not an experience I would wish on anyone, but I can feel my friend's dilemma because I lived it. And I'm not not sure the Christians I hung out with that morning get that. I guess the truth is, I was hoping for some empathy myself. I read a story like that and I wonder, I wonder if Lisa ever got the Jesus thing figured out. (laughs) Because Lisa needs Jesus. Jesus will change her. Jesus will change her through his love, his acceptance, his grace, and yes, his truth. Jesus is in the business of redeeming people, not cultures. Cultures are always going to reflect the spiritual condition of its citizens. And if we we desire a more Jesus-centered, Bible-honoring culture, we need more Jesus-centered people. (laughs) Because real change happens in the hearts of people. And government, any government, will always simply be a reflection of the spiritual condition of the citizens. And the culture that we live in, the culture in Germany, the culture, no matter where it is, needs to see the real, authentic person of Jesus. I I, I don't know, maybe... 
Maybe you call me naive, or maybe you call me simplistic, I don't know, but I just have this rooted belief deep in my soul that Jesus is, was, and always will be appealing to people. I think Jesus is almost irresistible if you really see him. I mean, I just I, I look at the life of Jesus. Jesus cared for and loved those who were sexually promiscuous. Do you know that? Jesus, he, he accepted and he loved and he even ate with the worst of sinners, the tax collectors. <laughs> Jesus was harsh, yes, but truthful with the church people who looked down their noses at the sinners of the world because they thought they were better. And people flocked to Jesus. There's just something quite appealing about this, this unconditional love and acceptance this unmeasured pouring out of grace. And coupled with this grace is this uncompromising truth. Uncompromising truth. And we as His people are, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are His ambassadors, His Designees, stewards of his life and his grace. That's who we, the church, are, the bearers of his life in the culture today. So that this person and this person and this person knows that they're unconditionally loved and unconditionally accepted, and that the grace of God is, is, is able to reach down into their sin, no matter what their history, and forgive them and love them and bring them into the family. And this is the truth. This is the truth about your sinfulness. This is the truth about your destiny. This is the truth about the, the lifestyles in which you... This, this truth accompanied with this completeness of grace is powerfully effective. And that's what God is doing in this day and age through the church. Reaching people one at a time. One soul at a time. And the culture begins to change. Would you join me as we pray that God would do these things in our life and in our church? Father, as we begin a new year, as we look down the track of 2017, we don't know all that is going to happen in the world or in our culture and we have a new president that comes on board in just less than a couple of weeks, and we don't know what all of that means. And uh, Father, we do pray for our leaders, and we pray for those in government, and we pray, Father God, for the peaceful transfer of power. And We do pray, Father, that biblical ideals would begin to uh, permeate our government, and we pray for that, we contend for that, we we want that, we desire that, and we'll not give up praying for it, no matter what we see happening. And yet, Father, we know that real life change happens because your grace, 
your life touches the, the life of another. And I pray, Father, that you would use me, that you would use leaders of this church, that you would use members of this church, that you would help us to infiltrate into the culture with this undying acceptance of people and not try to straighten people up and change their beliefs, but to unconditionally love them no matter what the history, no matter how confused they may be, no matter what lifestyle they may be living, no matter what they look like. But that we may love them as you love them and understand that your truth and your grace is what changes people, not our fine arguments that we can present. So many broken, hurting, wounded people that need you, Jesus, that need to see you in us. So that they may find grace to help them in their time of need. Father, build your kingdom in us. Build your kingdom in us that we may influence Georgetown, that we may influence Central Texas, all of Texas, that we may influence not only our nation, but through our partnerships with people like Frank and Natasha, influence the world with the life of Jesus to change the lives of countless people. Build your kingdom in this place. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.